Hi there. I would like to update you on N-Square, the conference we've been talking about it on this podcast. I'm really proud of the great programming, exceptional speakers, and unbelievable excitement we generated for N-Squared. However, the raging COVID Delta variant and the uncertainty it poses on travel and safety across the nation have made us rethink whether our celebration and excitement should be put on hold. We have decided to move the meeting to February 24th, 2022, which also happens to be Steve Jobs' birthday. Steve Jobs believed in the power of technology for transforming education. He will remain the pioneer for mobile technologies for generations to come. And he has been my role model for innovation, entrepreneurship, and end-to-end integrated design. I would like to celebrate his legacy by discussing the future of education at N Squared on February 24, 2022. You can find more information about N Squared at nsquared.events. Again, that's nsquared.events. I look forward to seeing you in February. Stay safe and stay healthy. Hello, everyone. I'm Kieran Kortala, your host on Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. I have with me Steve Lee. Steve Lee brings more than 20 years of experience on nonprofits, management consulting, and technology. Most recently, he served as managing director at Robinhood, New York's largest poverty-fighting organization, leading efforts for the organization on micro-lending, legal counsel, and workforce development, among other areas. He joins a team that includes more than 50 coalition partners, including Strata Education Network, Opportunity at Work, JFF, and Guild Education. Currently, he serves as Managing Director of Skill Up Coalition, which we are going to talk about throughout this podcast. Steve, welcome to Eliminate Higher Education Podcast. Uh, thanks, Karen. It's a true honor and pleasure to be here. Uh, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. So let's jump right into it. If I look at your overall experience, yeah. I know your bio doesn't really speak well, speaks volumes in terms of your social footprint and social management and entrepreneurship as well. But, you know, I'm very excited about your current coalition called Skill Up Coalition, because yep. it looks like it's done as a reaction to the pandemic and the unemployment crisis that ensured last year. Can you talk to us a little bit about the impact of COVID itself on the employees and jobs worldwide? So just, just in the U.S. alone, of low-wage workers in this country lost their job, 40%. That is roughly 35 million Americans across this country, an equal number across the globe. So you're talking about hundreds of millions of low-wage workers across the globe that were significantly impacted uh, by COVID. And then there are tangential effects right from this, particularly around children. So we think about parents who lose their work, the impact on kids and their trajectory, right, and their growth, et cetera. It obviously was a big problem. And when SkillUp launched in July of last year, we did it because of COVID. And we launched really quickly. You think about, like, I come from the tech space. Sometimes it takes months, if not years, to launch a product. We launched within a few weeks, right, because we realized that the need was now. And even though things weren't perfect, we thought perfection is enemy of good, that we really need to do something now. Uh, and so we launched in July of last year, really on the on the heels of COVID. And in the past, I don't know, 
13 months or so, we've helped roughly 450,000 workers, right, get information on upskilling. We connected many of them to world-class training providers uh, that provide the training and skills matching necessary to get people jobs. We've onboarded several employers who are willing to hire. Listen, there are lots of challenges that we still confront, but uh, we did it because of COVID. Tens of millions of workers were affected in this country. Many millions are still affected now, right? Even, uh, even, even, even on the tail ends. Unemployment rate for low-wage workers or is, you know, low-wage communities is 12%. I live in New York City. It's 15% uh, in, in the outer boroughs. It is still a huge problem. Again, it has rippling effects for communities and children, which is many reasons why I decided to join in the first place. So I think you're absolutely correct. I wanted, I was just going to expand on the topic of COVID itself, because there's two parts of the COVID crisis that were interesting. One is definitely on the low-wage workers, like restaurants yeah. or uh, shopkeepers, stuff like that. Yeah. But I think if you, when I look at the tech jobs, it looks yeah. like the tech jobs are having a glory, especially the tech job seekers, Correct. because people are paying premium prices for employees working from homes, working on yep. multiple jobs. Like, how do you handle this dichotomy, if you will? It's tough. Um, so this is something that's been going on for 40 years, right? So I, I, my, my personal belief is that the biggest fault line in this country is income inequality, which has gotten significantly worse in the past four years, right? As, as you have alluded to. And it's gotten even worse in the past 15 months since COVID. And so if I think about the K-shaped recovery, right, that is COVID, those on the high, on the upward slope are doing significantly better than even when they were doing before COVID. And they were doing pretty darn well before COVID. Those on the bottom slope of the K, right, were doing bad before COVID. So the K has gotten steeper. So it used to be like, I don't know if you can see it, it used to be like, and so it's gotten steeper on both ends, right? So the very wealthy have done really well, and the, and the folks that were trying to help have done worse. And I don't know entirely how to solve that problem, right? But that's why SkillUp exists, right? We exist as part of a coalition, that's really important, to try to address the downward slope of the K, to change the, the curve of it, and maybe put some folks on the upper slope of the K. One of the things I want to, I'm most interested in because you're working with Robin Hood Foundation and right. Scala Foundation, what are some of the changes of trends, if you will, from a job seekers? Because there's a lot more focus on gig economy these days where people yeah. are working as a teacher and driving an Uber or, you know, delivering pizzas and, I don't know, working at a tech firm. How has the job seekers mentality changed as a result of COVID? And how did the employer's mentality change as a result of COVID? I think if you ask 10 people, you'll get 10, 10 different answers to that question. I, I, I think for workers, I think you're partly right. I think workers have had to stretch how they work, right? So traditional means have been gone for, for 40 years, right? You're not going to work at IBM for 40 years. So they've had to stretch to go from work that they may have had Right, and they've lost some of that work, or had they seen some of the hours reduced, and they need to supplement some, and hence a gig non-traditional uh, work world. So I think I think that's happened a lot. What I think it's happened for workers though is that that's put a bit of a ceiling, right, on their ability to upscale, right, for lots of different reasons. If you work three jobs, you don't have the time necessary, right, to take upscaling classes, 
employers are more than happy in many ways, right, to pay gig workers at a certain rate, if I'm being honest, right, rather than, than, than full-time wages. So from the worker's perspective, I think there are lots of barriers just because of life itself, right? Right. Time and energy. And from an employer perspective, although I think things are changing literally right now, but you know, before the, um, the current day where I think employers are actually looking for workers these days, you know, six months ago, eight months ago, a year ago, employers were more than happy, right, to cut out, right, folks who were low wage, you know, keep the high end workers because, because they really do need them and, and let the gig world take over in many ways. And what's happened again is that it's, it's it further divided, right, this K, right, those on the upward slope are doing so much better, right? And those on the downward, or even the middle slope, right, are doing are, are doing worse. So employers are happy as clams, right, to cut out the middleman, if you will, and the low wage workers. As in, and you've seen that from some of the data, uh, while still retaining and increasing, right, that the high wage workers. It, it's a recipe for for it's going to continue the major fault line of our time, and 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 that is not good. Although I do think things are changing right now as we speak. Uh, but I can touch upon that. Later. Sure, sure. At Illuminate Higher Education, we talk about higher education, universities yeah. and colleges, and how they can do a better job, not only helping students finish their undergraduate coursework or getting right. get them a certificate, but also how do we get them to be better prepared for a new gig economy or yeah. a new vertical economy? Like, do you think universities are doing a good job to reacting to this crisis? I, I, I think some are. Karen, um, I think about schools like Georgia State, for example, right? But I, I'll be very honest with you. I, I've, I've known higher education for you know, since philanthropy. I, I think many of them are stuck in their sort of current business models, if you will, right? That, that, that we all know about, right? They're obviously also stuck a little bit in bureaucracy. But I think the most important thing for me, so skill up, we do our best to, to speak to the, the, the voice of the workers. So if you think about low-wage workers, their, their lives are what I would call scattered. It's not a smooth line, right? It's scattered. They, they have a job, they lose a job, right? They get public benefits, they lose public benefits, just like they're on UI, right? So their lives are, are scattered. And what I think universities don't understand is the dynamics of the worker. In this case, a student, I'm sorry. So I think about community colleges a lot, right? I think about the worker, the students who go to community colleges, their lives are very different than, than the lives that perhaps you and I, you and I had when I was college, right? They go to school, um, they have to drop out, they have to work, they have to raise a child, they have to take care of their parent, they go back to school, then they have to drop out. The graduation rate for community colleges in New York City, where I live, over six years is 12%. So only 12% of those who enter graduate within six years, right? And that's because the lives can, can be complicated. And I feel like most universities their business model can't accommodate, right, for their fractured lives. It's something that everyone knows about, right? And so, you know, the problem is that incentives are tough to overcome. The other thing is that, you know, we live in a, we live in a skills-based economy, as you well know, right? So I also think that many universities, traditional ones, right, have not been able to match the skills-based needs, right, of the students they have in, in the current workforce, which is why when you see the Coursera's, the Phoenixes, right? The Southern New Hampshire's, they've been able to take over a little bit of market share, right? Because they've been able to think about that skills-based, right? All these boot camps, right? Skills-based. And even, even us, nonprofit, skills-based. Traditional universities are less so. And there's still a role for that, don't get me wrong. 
but the trends are not going in the right direction. I think, but I will say it's hard to change incentive structures, Karen. Um, those are always the hardest things to change. Yeah, I agree. And also, I think they are, you know, like you said, their business model is set in stone, literally, um, because they have libraries and buildings and campuses. They can yes. be serving up commuting students the way, I, don't know, I guess, the Western governors or ASU can do. Right. So there is definitely that uh, inertia there in traditional colleges. And you're right, the community colleges are definitely filling the void here. But uh, there's a lot that needs to be done. I really like what SkillUp is doing. So we talked a little bit about the problem of getting a good job. So let's yeah. talk about SkillUp Coalition. What sure. exactly does it do? How does it help a gig worker get yeah. a better job or be better suited so that they can get a better job? Yeah, great question. Um, so first, I will say that SkillUp, actually, it is a coalition. It's actually our official IRS name, SkillUp Coalition. And that actually really matters because honestly, like who knows skill up? Like really, right? If I'm being honest, right? Hey, maybe this podcast will expose ourselves, right? But if you look at our coalition here, right? You look at look Gill, right? Um, Coursera, right? Southern New Hampshire, those are our coalition partners. Those brand names actually matter and they bring our, um, a level of a brand, right? That lets us get in-kind support as necessary, right? We're gonna be able to reach a partner that we may not be able to reach or reach a funder we may not be able to reach. So I, I, I really do emphasize a coalition and we really are a coalition. So how, do, how does it work? First, um, our target population are those who make under $40,000 without a college degree. And so the first thing we do is we outreach. We wanna find those workers. And we traditionally use digital means to do so that we all know, right? Facebook, Instagram, Google search ads. Um, and that's how we have drawn in roughly 450,000 workers right to our site. It's primarily through, um, through social media platforms. Once they get onto the site, the whole idea is to basically very simply and quickly, because people don't have time, to curate what, 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 their, what their job profile should look like. And in essence, what that means is we, add, we have an algorithm uh, where we ask seven questions to take 25 seconds as you answer this question, because people don't have time. But what that does is it creates a profile for you. And that profile says that this type of job is good for you. And the jobs that we say are good for you are actually matched through labor market analysis that we think are the most in-demand jobs across America that have living wages and are the future work type jobs. So not just any job, but jobs that we have done through labor market analysis that we think are in-demand jobs. So it will identify those jobs for you and then it will do two things. It will either pull down through API data, the jobs in your area that are those jobs. Or more importantly, it will connect you to a training or certification provider, sometimes institutions of higher education, that will train you right, to get the skill set necessary to get that job. And we have vetted uh, through our own criteria what we think are, I don't know, 400 or so of the best training or certification programs across the country. Many that we all know, right? The Coursera's and the Western government, and many that people have no idea about, but are really, really, really good. And the reason we do it is because the supply side of workers who need training vastly outstrips the really high quality demand side of providers that can do the training. And we want to expose more of those out in the community to meet the supply side of workers who actually need that. 
because everyone always talks about the same 30, 30 providers. It's the same names that come up, but there are many good ones out there. We want to expose those. We want to get people to those programs and we want to let those programs do their best. And so we have 400 now, hopefully more, more going forward. And that's a real value. And the last thing I'll say is uh, two, two other things. One, we have a scholarship fund where we provide up to $1,000, right, to de-risk one of the major risks to taking a program, which is money. So we have that for a subset of, of our students. And then lastly, uh, we work with quite a few employers on the back end, uh, either ourselves or through our training providers that will actually hire folks. Because at the end of the day, that, that, that's what we care about. So that, that's basically how it works. And then we try to collect data on the back end, right, to prove to our partners and funders that we're actually doing a good job and so forth. So that, that is typically how it works. We're always testing, like we're still a startup, right? So we make mistakes a lot. We do this, we test, we learn, we revise, we do it again, we rinse and repeat. We'll never be perfect, but hopefully by rinsing and repeating, we just get better all the time. I like the fact that you're taking a person's profile and understanding A, which job are they most capable of doing or best suited for and understanding the gaps and using the coalition to fix the gaps. That's amazing. I wish most institutions do the same because if you think about it, you have programs like Bachelor of Arts or Bachelor of Technology or Bachelor of you know, Pharmacy. Well, I guess there, there is some direct correlation with that degree and a job, but most of the others, uh, there's no real correlation. That might be okay 200 years ago when we were right. really just trying to figure out, figure out our life in the four right. years after high school. But right. now when you're dealing with lifelong learners who really want to upskill themselves, they really need to understand what they want to do and how do they get there. It looks like skill up does get you to that. Did I understand that correctly? That, that's exactly, it's, it's exactly right. Um, um, listen, I will, I will say that there are challenges, right? Like, like any sort of, we're, we're sort of a B2C. Right, we try to reach the end consumer. We have challenges like all B2C, right? Uh, but for the most part, that's exactly right. And like I said, I think the two most important things are we try to listen to the voice of the worker. So we do a lot of surveys of workers. We have 30,000 email addresses where we can reach out to workers. Hey, are we doing a good job or are we not? And we often hear, hey, you're not, right? So here's how you got to do better, right? Um, we actually have a worker advisory board, uh, five members who are who we, we give some uh, recompense to that give us very honest feedback. Often like, hey, this needs to be better because if that's who we're trying to reach. If we're, not, if we're not doing it with simplicity and speaking to their voice, then what the heck are we doing? Um, so that, that, that's just really important. Yeah, the feedback loop is absolutely critical for any company to be successful. I think you're doing the right thing by thinking of it as a startup and rinsing and repeating. Trust me, I call myself a scrappy startup that's 10 years old myself. Like, you know, I don't know if I'll ever become Amazon or something, but as long as I'm alive, I keep working on the same cycle you talked about, that's how great. we improve our processes and make it better for our customers. That's great. So there is a couple of things I want to dive into. One is, yeah. is Skillup more local for New York employees or can anybody in the United States can participate in that or outside of the United States as well? Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, how many different workers to support, what topologies, and also are there any differences between a worker in Australia uh, when compared to a worker in the United States? Yeah, um, I, I will first say that we're only national. 
Um, we're not we're not international, although who knows, right? A few years down the road, um, because it, it, it is a global problem. So we are national. So the way, way we work, we have a national site, spinup.org, when a, anywhere in America can go. And I mentioned before you take this short quiz. One of the questions that's asked is, you know, what's your zip code? And then it will produce um, jobs and or training providers, no matter where you are in the country. And a lot of our providers are remote in a virtual world. And so there's real value just for the national site. I live in New York City, uh, and, you, and, and you live in Atlanta. As you know, everything happens locally. And so the jobs are local. The training providers can be local. Employers are most certainly local, right? We currently have five, what, I, what we call microsites, that are specific to a geography. Los Angeles, Bay Area, Reno, Nevada. So three people, three on the West. Uh, and then um, three cities in Louisiana and Central Florida. Very interesting mix, right? And I think soon to come, New York City, Philly, and Appalachian, Ohio. So it's a really interesting mix of rural, urban, West Coast, East Coast, South, North, or all, all that kind of stuff. And the reason that we do it is because, like I said, everything happens locally. And I, let, me, let me give you the, the tactics. I think tactics are important. So we do a local marketing campaign. I mentioned earlier, a lot of stuff we do with marketing. So marketing in like Louisiana is very different than marketing in Los Angeles. As you that's can, right. Did you right? And so that's really important. The pathways, the jobs themselves are very different, as you can imagine. Like Los Angeles has the biggest port in America, right? So there are jobs there. Louisiana doesn't have a port, right? Oh, it does, but it's, it's more it's more sort of central. So like oil and gas is big. Like Florida, like the retail industry and the travel is really big. And so we have unique pathways and jobs that are bespoke, right, to those communities that, work, that, that workers can take advantage of. And then lastly, employers, there are very few like national employers that are in every city in America, right? So, you know, most employers are local. Many employers are mid, mid to small size businesses that need to hire locally. And so we onboard these local employers or our coalition partners have local employers that we utilize to get people jobs in the back end. And again, I say all this because if you're a New Yorker, it really helps to have an experience that's New York, right? So we haven't launched New York yet, but we will. Like the, the site will look very different, right? Then let's say Los Angeles, it might have like the Statue of Liberty, right? It might have like Derek Jeter, right? You know, whatever it is, right? It might not have the, the Knicks, right? Because they stink. But it'll have something that might be very, you know, uh, sort of New York focused. And I think that matters, right? And then funders. Funders are because we're nonprofit. A lot of our funders are local. Right? Most philanthropy is local. Just sort of like I used to work at Robinhood. And so you have these local philanthropies that want to fund local efforts. So, we, don't, you know, not, not California, but I just want to do New York. And so you combine all those things together, um, you, you typically have a, a richer experience logging on to Skill Up Los Angeles than if you were a Los Angeles resident going to a national site, because there's, there's much more specific information and specific pathways that don't necessarily exist or it's hard to find on, on the national site. That's great. I mean, I like the fact that you're trying to localize this as well. I see your life of experience and one of the things that i was quite interested about is the fact that before you joined skill up and before you became a social entrepreneur you were more in a, as a real venture capitalist you worked at bain capital if you will and i was looking at your linkedin profile and you know it is very clear that you are really passionate about what you do and i i want to read out like a couple of things couple, the first uh, three sentences i see on a profile Occasionally, it creates some technical expertise, um, but I found 
bind successful practitioners in the space are three key traits, passion for the work, fairness and equity at the fore, community voice as the anchor. I want you to talk about a couple of things. Definitely, number one, what made you move from a Wall Street to a more of a social entrepreneur, right? Uh, and how you're committing yourself to social causes like poverty eradication or upskilling and yeah. the like. And also, like, how do you make the transition and really your commitment of on passion, fairness, and community wise? Uh, because that's very fulfilling and enriching for me. Yeah. So I, I think I think the genesis of this I mentioned, like, I think the the fault line in this country is really about this income inequality, right? That's been true for, for, for many. And then, um, you know, when I was at Robin Hood, we spent a lot of time around um, intergenerational poverty. And so the I think the reality is that if you look at data, right, and you look at results for populations that we care about, in many ways, if you are a, um, a child living in, you know, relatively low-income community, there's a very good chance when you become an adult, that you may be living in a low, low income community, uh, just because of the systems that we have. I believe, I do firmly believe that trying to resolve multi generational poverty is, again, one of the most important things we can do because the data suggests such, right? So think about the data, like, I, there's recent data that said if you're a 30 year old, if you're a 30 year old now, you're doing worse than your parents did when they were 30 years, right? Inflation adjusting. And that speaks that there hasn't been any movement across the country for workers that we care, except the ones who are doing well. And I feel like if if we can change intergenerational, intergenerational poverty, then we've done something good. And I think really the only two ways to do that, right? One is education, right? If we can fix our K through 12, primarily K through 12, but also higher education. And then secondly, this idea of work, right? If we can get uh, non-traditional adults into better work, what that does and research suggests that it does, it has trickle down positive effects for the kids. Their kids become more engaged, they do better in school, et cetera, and then those kids do better. And so when their kids do better, hopefully they can be as adults, they'll be better off, and then their, their, their grandkids will be better off, et cetera. That, that's the reason why I think scale up is so important, is it can play, and that's why this is actually important to me, right? Because generational poverty is the fault line of our time. And unless we do something about it, this K, it's just going to get, it's going to become an L, not an L. It's going to become a straight line <laughs> where literally like the wealthy are like this and the low income are, are out altogether. And I, I don't, I don't want that to happen. Yeah, I agree. And that can cause a lot of social unrest and other civil problems as well. So as you start thinking about the future of work and future yeah. of education, where do you see higher education going? Where do you see work going? Will it be more gig economy? Will it be more tech workers? Can you talk to us a little bit about the future that we are entering in the next five, 10 years? Yeah, I, I think part of it, what's happening now, I think portends the future, which is, I think I've, the most recent data I've seen in terms of hiring, right now, um, employers are looking for workers on the high end and the low end, right? They're looking for the retail person to work in a warehouse at, at Amazon. At the same time, they're looking for the engineer to work at Amazon, right? But it's this middle tier, right, of traditional laborers in the, I don't know, 60 to 80,000 a year marketplace, which I think are somewhat becoming antiquated uh, and are starting even now, right, starting to lose. So I think that's going to continue to be so, right? It's like that middle tier. 
instead of the blue collar middle class American, which has lots of ripple effects, at least I think, lots of ripple effects on how they choose to engage with community, how they choose to vote, you know, things of that sort. So I, I think that's a trend line that's going to continue. Five to 10 years from now, I think unless we do something about it, I, I have a feeling that it's going to be the same, right? If I had to predict, unless there's massive, like, you know, you know maybe there's some legislative change that, that does something, that the fault lines will continue to be as such, because that's just the way the world is broken. You mentioned tech, it is definitely going to world tech. Uh, as um, you know, we're, we're going to lose drivers, right, in, you know, in 20 years. And so I, I do think that's, and I thought I talk about how to but I think, I think you went away from something here. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you think about it, um, I was actually recently reading that Amazon fresh master student gets a almost a 200k package from Amazon. Right. Like, I don't think most people that I know make 200k. Uh, it's just the point is that the chasm between tech workers and non-tech workers was always big, but now it's big, becoming bigger and bigger. I don't know if it's because of COVID. I don't know if it's because of lack of skilled workers. Right. But regardless, that needs to be addressed. And, and I'm really glad that Upskill is trying to resolve the problem by getting people involved. Um, I, can, can I say one thing? That? I'm sorry, sorry, sure. which is so. I spoke to the the head of um, FedEx Ground, uh, the head of FedEx Ground HR, human human capital, maybe like three months ago. He said he's hiring twelve thousand workers a week on the low end in the warehouse. So again, I think that speaks to the Amazon person, but also speaks on the ground, like FedEx, 12,000 workers a week across the country in their warehouses, they're thirsting for on the low end, right? And I think that will likely continue. It's like that middle ground, which I think is, is, is gonna start suffer over the years. Yeah, well, let's hope that organizations like Upskill, or sorry, Scale Up Coalition and uh, all the other ventures that you start will help resolve this gap. We are, I'm certainly rooting for you. Steve, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Uh, it's been profoundly refreshing and very inspiring to see that what you're doing. It's uh, absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Illuminate Higher Education, sponsored by End-to-End Services and our Illuminate app. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network. You can learn more about Illuminate app at illuminateapp.com and continue the conversation with us there. If there are any topics you'd like us to discuss further, please email them to us at podcast at n2nservices.com. That's podcast at n2nservices.com. Thank you.